Let's hit it. And welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Alzheimer's Speaks. I'm Lori LeBay, the founder, and I hope you enjoyed our opening music called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band featuring Maya Dore. You can download that on any of your favorite music platforms if you'd like. For those of you that are new to the show, we're about sound information, not just sound bites. We like to have true conversations with real people in the trenches and maybe just maybe you can be our next guest reach out to me anytime and i'd love to have a conversation i want to thank all of our listeners your likes your clicks your shares have really expanded our reach and helped us with collaborations and build a sense of community and raise awareness about all of the services products and tools that are available now during this time of covid choral health is letting people download their free music app music first and choral faith so you can just go to uh, choral c-o-r-o health.com for more information. I also want to draw attention to a survey that's out on caregiver burnout, and it's put together uh, by a student, Chantel Horn, over in New Zealand, and you can find out more information regarding that on our website or our blog. Uh, just go to alzheimerspeaks.com. Now, I don't know if, if all of you know that it is World Alzheimer's Month, but actually on Monday, uh, it was uh, World Alzheimer's Day. And so Dementia Action International is putting on a Meeting of the Minds webinar about human rights and a practice model for residential aged care. And you can find out more on that by just going AI.org for that. I also want to give a shout out to Artist Senior Living. We did our first Artist Way Memory Cafe this last week, and it went marvelous. And we would love you to join us on the third Wednesday of each month from 1 to 2 o'clock. Again, you can find more information on that uh, by contacting them directly at 612-200-0400. One last shout out I just want to give to the foot bar walker. It is an amazing tool for people to use. It's not just a walker. It helps the patient build upper body strength. It reduces falls and it really takes a lot of stress and strain off the care partner as well in terms of getting them up uh, to the walker and back down. So check out the foot bar walker Dot com. Let's get to our guest today. I'm really intrigued to talk with this person. 
Her name is Dr. Andrea Clemens, and she is the Chief Medical Officer for MDVIP. She is also the Executive Organizational Leader of the MDVIP's Medical Advisory Board that supports the quality and innovation in delivery of, health, of their healthcare model drawing expertise from all their affiliate physicians. And today we're gonna to be talking about a brain health survey that they have along with a lot of other things. So I know you're going to enjoy this interview. Welcome Dr. Clemens, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you for having me. Well, I'm excited to have this conversation. You know, it's, it's World Alzheimer's Month and it's actually World Alzheimer's Day this week and so there's just so much stuff going on. I know you guys are really getting involved with uh, Alzheimer's and dementia and you have a survey that shows that most Americans don't know the facts about brain health, which I would totally agree with. And yet they're, are, they're constantly worrying about, do I have dementia? Is this Alzheimer's? Do I tell anybody? Do I go to the doctor? Why is there such a disconnect about their concern and what people actually know? Well, you know, the MDVIP survey found that two in three Americans are concerned about their brain health, but more than half or almost half failed our brain health IQ quiz. So there's a disconnect. I think the disconnect is education. You really need to know about you. You need to find a doctor like an MDVIP doctor who can partner with you to help you understand what diseases put you at risk, what risk factors put you at risk, and what you can do to mitigate some of those risks. Oh, I totally agree. You know, my mom had dementia for 30 years, and I used to sell residential real estate, and I worked a lot with senior housing in terms of helping people transition. And I was so frustrated of the lack of information. And that's actually what got me into this space was there's gotta be a better way uh, to help families and to get resources out to them. Now, the majority of Americans say that they're comfortable talking with their doctor about brain health, but I gotta be honest, I don't think they are um, in the conversations. And I talk with people all over the world. And, uh, you know, they always complain that, you know, the doctors don't give them resources and they're not helpful. But yet, I, again, I don't think they're necessarily asking the right questions. So what should they be discussing with their doctors? Mm -hmm. It's not even just them asking the right questions, but it's the doctor having the time to really work with them. So one of the most important things would be to get a cognitive test. Um, our MDVIP survey showed that a staggering 65% of people over the age of 55 have never had a cognitive test, nor have they had over half haven't had depression screening or a hearing check or even a neurological exam, all things that can pinpoint risk factors for cognitive decline. So you need to kind of be prepared just like with any other disease. You need to be prepared when you go into your physician and make sure that they have the time they have the knowledge about the screening tests, and then they can really work with you. Um, at MDVIP, the doctors have tools to help you with things like diet and exercise and those screening tests that you need to do to look for cognitive decline or hearing loss, um, all things that can affect your brain health. You know, I really like that you mentioned up the time and the knowledge because I hear that repeatedly from people. 
you know, I'm in and out. I feel like I'm on this stopwatch and, you know, and then they throw me to the nurse and I, I still don't feel like I'm getting all my answers. I'm overwhelmed. I'm emotional. Um, sometimes I don't feel like I'm there very compassionate in terms of their delivery and yet they all understand they're under this kind of insurance pressure <laughs> to to meet the time frames and see so many clients and then the knowledge base is really huge because so many people tell me it takes them two to three years to get a diagnosis and and I know that it's complicated and it can mask itself like depression and so many other things are you seeing that with, with your clinicians as well? Or do you really feel like you've taken that extra step so that they do have the knowledge and they do have the ability to take the time with, with their clients? Yeah, I, I feel like the MDVIP network has that extra step. Um, you know, most physicians, we've all gone through medical school. You know, I went through medical school in a fellowship and in an internship and in a residency. And so I think we learn a lot, but unless you have the time to sit with somebody, and really try and get to the root of things. I can give you a perfect story. I had one of the sweetest patients. And I mean, the type of woman who at, at 85 is, you know, four foot 10 and, and, you know, you feel like a wind will blow her over. And she was very lovely, had diabetes. We'd come in every three months and we were working on taking care of her blood sugars. And I just couldn't understand why we couldn't get them under control. And her daughter-in-law was a nursing, it was a nurse and a nursing supervisor at my hospital. And we'd run into each other in the hallway and we'd question things. Finally, the daughter went over to the house, drew up her insulin, put it in two little boxes and put them in the fridge and said, take this in the morning before breakfast, this in the morning, in the evening before dinner. And we figured that would fix it. Still didn't help. And so the daughter and I finally sat down with the woman one day and she was so charming. And she would giggle and smile at us. And we finally realized that, also with some cognitive testing, that she had cognitive decline and she actually had Alzheimer's, we, we later went on to diagnose. And she was so good at masking it and so good at, at, at giggling to us. It's one of those things that always sits with me, sticks with me to say, you really have to have that time. And that took a lot of time between working with the daughter-in-law, working with her, and you need to have that. You can't have, to your point, a physician in traditional practice who has, we all used to call them the doorknob questions because their hand is on the doorknob and they're about ready to leave and you're asking that last important question. And so you need that time and you need to be doing the screening. I, you know, when you ask most people, when was the last time they had a hearing test? Um, unless you're complaining of an issue, it's probably been a long time and many of us don't really know if we're starting to have hearing issues although my daughter keeps telling me i have one well that's interesting and i love the the dot the doorknob question too because that is so true i i don't i do it all the time you know um to people when i'm having a meeting and then it's like well what about you know because you just have that few extra seconds to process something and, uh, and that is really, really important uh, to be able to do. I also think um, when you were talking about the masking of symptoms, people are masters at that. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody wants to feel less than. And all of our lives, um, we have had to adapt. And so we adapt when symptoms appear. And yet once there's a diagnosis, 
there seems to be this cutoff line too that where people don't want to adapt anymore they just want to go into denial and you know it's working the family and and the patient all through that um, at one time um, how do you how do people recognize some of the early signs of dementia or alzheimer's disease versus normal aging i just had a friend call me up the other day and go laurie i think i'm losing it and, you know we kind of talked through things um, but I'd like to hear your opinion and, and what's your spiel when you talk to patients? Sure. So I think the red flags are um, just like my patient, you know, memory loss that really disrupts your daily life, poor judgment, poor decision making. I mean, it's not when you walk into a room and can't remember why you went there and go out and remember in an hour or even in 20 minutes. You know, that's the normal consequence of aging. I think that's part of you know, the bigger educational issue with Alzheimer's also is many people think Alzheimer's is just normal. If you get old enough, you'll get Alzheimer's. So why would you bother to think about it, get screened for it or do anything? And there are so many things you can do to mitigate those risk factors and look for them ahead of time so you can keep your brain sharp. Yeah, you know, I think there's just so much fear because of the lack of education and awareness yet since the 10 years I've been in this space, I mean, it has gone up significantly, but it's still a smidgen compared to where we need to be. And so, um, you know, I can, I can talk when my mom had dementia, how their friends kind of scattered. And then another, after my mom passed away, um, one of their friends, the husband, got di diagnosed. And it really still wasn't greatly talked about. And now he's passed away. Now the wife has it. And it's still a subject that the family is having a hard time broaching with the mother because there's such great fear. So just because you're familiar with the path or you've walked the path doesn't make it any easier. And those family dynamics are, I mean, they vary so much in every family. You know, hopefully there's at least one person that gets it and can help support you through that. Um, one question I want to talk about too is do you recommend when a patient comes to you that they that they have a second set of ears in that appointment if they're comfortable with that? I think that's good for anything. I know my dad had pancreatic cancer and you know if you sit in a doctor's office and somebody uses the word cancer or Alzheimer's, any of those you know viscerally emotionally invoking diagnoses, somebody else needs to be there to listen to actually hear what they say, because I know that my mom will tell the story that when they were sitting in the doctor's um, office and when they said, you know, yes, you have pancreatic cancer, which of course, when I reviewed one of his scans, I knew early on, you know, I knew before they sat in the doctor's office, but you know, your brain kind of shuts down. You don't want to hear, or you start going down those paths of what does this mean? You know, whether it's the person who, what does this mean for my family or what does this mean for me? Or what does this mean for my spouse? So getting others involved so they can help you remember and, and help you just um, and support you. You know, our MDVIP survey showed that one in three in the survey had a family member with dementia. So you would have thought that they would have passed the quiz, right? Because at least that many people should have gotten it right, but you know, nearly half failed. So it's education and it's pulling in the families, I think, to your point, what you've been doing for the last years is just amazing to get those resources that support together. And you know, you're not in it alone and it. It can't be easy to walk into a room and talk to your mother and her not recognize you, right? I mean, how did that, you internalize that and 
it can be an easy thing to do. Yeah. Um, one of the things I wanted to um, mention in this, this is a perfect opening for that. I wanted to ask you is, you know, what is some of the good news? You know, what are some of the steps of reducing the risk of cognitive decline? And then, you know, also with you saying, you know, how difficult it is when someone doesn't know you anymore. I personally found great gifts in going there and in accepting that. But again, it's getting people in the right mind frame to even open the door to some of these things. But what are some steps that people can take to really reduce that risk? I mean, I think there is a silver lining and our MDVIP study showed that 80% of people said that they want to learn and they want to mitigate their risk. But it's interesting because only one in four knew what diseases impacts their brain health, things like diabetes, or what other risk factors, things like gum disease, or even just how to mitigate any of those risks. So again, and you know, you said this before too, I think education is the key. And it needs to be personal education because you know, if you have, my mother-in-law has diabetes, right? My mother doesn't, so their risks will be very different. They're very different people um, with very different risk profiles. And you need a physician, like an MDVIP physician who can work with you and know, well, maybe you don't have diabetes, but your mother does. And so we do need to worry about that in you. You need to get your sugars under control or, you know, have you been screened for depression? Have you been screened for, you know, hearing loss? All things that can affect your brain health also. Yeah, well, then you get into, um, for my mom, for 10 years, she was told by her doctor it was her hormones. And my mom used to say, this ain't my girlfriend's hormones. And she was just like, I know it's more than that. I've talked with my friends. It's very different. But, you know, she had a doctor that they had gone to for 40 years. And, you know, that was 36 years ago. Very few people were even talking about this, let alone having any sense of knowledge. I think the other thing that is really important about um, delivery of that information to people is using multiple platforms so that we engage them in their learning style, um, especially in this fast-paced world, which can be a, a gift and a curse <laughs> all wrapped into mm -hmm. one. Um, and that's one of the things I've tried to do with Alzheimer's Speaks is do videos like this, yet have the audio, have the blog, different ways that people can tap in if they want to engage. Um, and I also think, and I haven't seen this done uh, well, I guess, um, and maybe I've missed it out there, but even having a, I hate to say support group or chat group that focuses on reducing the risk and people talk about what kind of exercise are they doing? What are they engaging in? How have they changed their food habits? We've, we now have a lot of um, support groups through Facebook. I, I'm going to use them primarily because that's probably the biggest one where you can put in, you know, dementia caregiver or living with, and you'll find all kinds of groups um, for all different types of dementias. But yet I haven't seen one that really has engaged people to talk about, let's really do this. You know, and, and I'm probably one of the worst offenders. I, I talk a lot about exercise and eating well, and I still don't do it to the level that I need to do it because I'm so busy trying to push out the word. That's my excuse. But, you know, you have to make time. I, I know that too. And I know that I'm just kind of in uh, a denial state in, in some 
levels and I need to, I need to change that because there is a risk factor, you know, for me. Um, you know, that's just, there's a risk factor really for all of us because dementia doesn't know any boundaries. It doesn't really care. Right. And you, you know, it's very hard to prioritize yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, we're very good at prioritizing everything else. Um, even, you know, being on time for an interview, right? I can prioritize that and be here on time for you. But to your point, did I do something for me or did I go exercise this morning or did, you know, did I make that healthy choice for lunch and have a salad versus, you know, the burger and fries? Yeah. Um, so, you know, it is hard for anybody to do that. But I think the knowledge really helps. I have found over years and not just in my private practice, but, you know, supporting 1,100 physicians across the country, you know, almost 350,000 patients, is that when you have that information, you know, if you know that I have, I don't, but if I had diabetes and I had gum disease and these are things that's going to put my brain health at risk and my heart health at risk, then I need to do things to make those better. And what do I need to do? And, you know, going to a dentist is an easy thing to prioritize as long as you're not too afraid. Um, but, you know, and in this time during COVID, it's hard because do you feel comfortable going to the dentist? Do you even feel comfortable going to your doctor? Um, thank goodness for virtual and telehealth right now. But there's a lot of things that I think do go through people's minds. We just have to find the right way to educate them. And what I've found is that trusted physician um, who has the time to sit with you and go through it and with your family member if they're there with you. Um, that's, that's the magic that happens in MDVIP offices every day. And that, that is so important. I, I mean, I talk with people all the time and they're like, we're just, we don't feel comfortable. It's like, then you need to go get another appointment. You need to seek another doctor. That is your right. And you're able to do that. And, and yet there's, I think still ingrained, especially with our older adults, well, no, this is, this is who I've been assigned and my doctor knows best and not to question. And nowadays people are like, hey, I talked, you know, I was online talking with Dr. Google and they're bringing this and this and this and that might drive, you know, doctors crazy. But in some ways it's also can be educational for the physicians to find information that they may or may not have known or be able to put a squelch to something that's like, no, please, this is not a good, this is not a good idea. Um, and so I think those things are, are really important. What do you think are some of the most striking findings from the survey? You've touched on some of them, but are there some others? There's actually, and it goes to this whole education and the word I was thinking of when you're talking about that is being an advocate for yourself and you doing some research. I mean, as a physician, I never minded when somebody brought in, you know, what is, is this medication good for me, do you think? Because it, it starts a dialogue. It opens up that conversation to say, well, you know, this one's probably not right for you, but what about this one? So in the MDVIP study, we found that one in three um, did not know that there are diseases that can be mistaken for Alzheimer's, mistakenly diagnosed as that. So things like depression or thyroid issues, brain, uh, bleeding into the brain, HIV, or even a urinary tract infection, especially in an older patient, can present as, you're nodding your head, can present as cognitive decline and being diagnosed as Alzheimer's when all of those things are treatable and, and some curable. So you really need to, especially if a family member brings in a parent, to say, to know about these sort of things and say, hey, look, did you look for these? 
um, hopefully the doctor would have the time and the, and the tools and all to do that. But if they don't, then you need to be an advocate for yourself or your family member. Yeah, I'd like to just mention a couple others that, that I have heard of that, that can kind of give those false positives pointing you in the wrong direction is the dehydration because a lot of, a lot of people, um, as we get older, we don't like to drink as much because we got to run to the bathroom more. And so they want to limit that and they don't want to have an accident um, or medication mix. You know, you're getting one medication here and one medication there and being able to talk with your doctor or even the pharmacist will assess those things and then can talk in the, in the doctor's language as to why it's not, not good and what alternatives are and then vitamin um, deficiencies sometimes too. So there's a lot of things that have to be pushed out of the way first, uh, you know, um, as you're going through with that. Now, another thing that I hear, um, and I love that you brought up gum disease, so I'm going to go there first. Um, because I, I had someone on the show, I mean, years ago about gum disease and people just like, that is like quackaroo. There's no way it's about plaques and dangles. And it's so interesting, all the different things that are coming up right now mm -hmm. in terms of, in terms of the disease. And, and I, can you talk a little bit about the gum disease itself? Yeah, sure. So. Um, when you have, you know, periodontal gum disease, there's infection or in and inflammation in your mouth. Mm -hmm. Well, as you can imagine, if there's inflammation somewhere in your body, it can be anywhere in your body, especially if it's in your mouth or if you have, um, a, you know, like an inf infection in your heart or even like an appendicitis. And you know, you've heard of people where that gets into their bloodstream and, and goes throughout their whole body. If you have this chronic inflammation, it A, makes you more um, at risk for a heart attack or a stroke. Um, but then also some of it, that inflammation, it can cross the blood brain barrier and some of those bacteria can too, so that they can affect your brain health. Um, I think we've learned so much over the last even 10, 15 years about chronic inflammation and the things that drive that, things like um, prediabetes, insulin resistance, the, the stages way before diabetes that then make you more prone for vascular dementia or other you know, points of cognitive decline. And it, it's really a kind of easy thing to say, go to the dentist, get cleanings, and if they think that you have periodontal disease, you know, they wash out your mouth with some antibiotic and they tell you to floss a little better and they do that scaling and planing thing, but you just go into the office and then you follow up with the dentist. And it's amazing, I mean, I have physicians who have, diagnosed people after a heart attack because they had the systemic inflammation, had their mouth tested, found out what bacteria were in there, treated them, and those markers of inflammation that showed they were very much at risk for a heart attack come way, way, way down because you're treating that root of inflammation in the body. And so just like you know, heart, the, the heart and brain um, react very similarly to a lot of these different diseases. And so, those are all things that you can really, you can do something very easily about gum disease. Go to the dentist and brush and floss and everything your mother said, right? Yep, yep. And, uh, and again, simple things to do, not costly. It's just about changing your routine if you've gotten out of the habit or maybe you never had the habit. 
Um, very important. You know, one thing I'd like to have you do, because um, we're always getting new listeners, um, if you wouldn't mind, how do you explain to families the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia? Because so many people just think they're one and the same. Right. Well, and, and all of dementia is not Alzheimer's, as you know, right? So Alzheimer's is a specific um, type of cognitive decline or dementia. But there are other things. I mean, Parkinson's has a dementia associated with it, which is not Alzheimer's. But again, um, it still does give you that cognitive decline. And then there are the diseases that can be masked as Alzheimer's or misdiagnosed, like we talked about before, depression, thyroid, all those things. So you need to have somebody who's going to do the right cognitive testing. I mean, the only way to truly diagnose Alzheimer's, as you know, is by autopsy right, is to look at the brain and say, yes, you have all those changes from Alzheimer's. We use it more as a diagnosis of exclusion once we've ruled out the other things and you have those symptoms. So, so you need to understand what you need to look for so that you can determine, is it truly Alzheimer's? I mean, I know there are some new tests out there. Um, I spoke to one company, they can do a skin biopsy and they can very well, they can um, diagnose Alzheimer's um, very precisely, except that that skin biopsy costs a lot of money. Um, and would you do that to just make sure that's what your diagnosis is? Or if you've ruled out everything else, you feel comfortable that yes, um, that's where I am. And then since there is really no cure at this point, it, it's kind of, it's important to have the right diagnosis if there's something you can treat. Yeah. Um, but if you're at the Alzheimer's you know, point, then, we just have to do the best that we can. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because uh, so many times people will go, well, my mom's got dementia. We don't really care what kind it is, but it is important to know. Um, I, I sometimes agree that as it progresses, you don't have to continue to take tests because there isn't anything that can change. And if, if a family is aware, but again, I think that's an individual family choice in terms of, of what's going on there. But um, thinking of the disease category, because dementia is really a category, like mm -hmm. the flu is a category, like uh, the common cold, like cancer, and then there's all these subcategories that, that fall into that family base of whatever the category is. And what I have seen and heard from, from many people, um, because a, a course who wants to say yeah kill me take the autopsy let my family know that's that's not the route, route we're gonna go not where we go <laughs> no like with my mom we thought she had alzheimer's that's what she was diagnosed with but she did have an autopsy and the autopsy showed some parkinson's and it also showed some lewy body and so i you know i sat down with the doctor afterwards and i said you know explain the medical google got to me because I, I don't know all this language and stuff. And he was wonderful. It was, and I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Fry here who started the whole nasal insulin thing and had a dream back in 77 to kick that all off. But, um, you know, he sat down and kind of said, well, I'm going to ask you, what did you see as far as Parkinson's? And I said, well, you know, she became less mobile but we didn't really necessarily know that it was Parkinson's because she was so far along in the disease process. As far as Lewy body, she, you know, a lot of Lewy body people will have hallucinations and delusions and things. And 
we didn't really see that. We'd see her talking sometimes with people who had passed. I said, but as a family member, I'd gotten to the point of she's comfortable. It's okay. What do I know? You know, and she's, she's not hurting anybody. She's not hurting herself and she's not upset. So we didn't, we didn't dig deeper um, in that, but the majority of it, you know, was Alzheimer's and they looked, he said, I mean, he literally said, Lori, I've never seen a brain that has shrunk this much. And he said, but after 30 years, this is exactly what we should expect, you know, to be able to see. And then, you know, others sometimes will be told, well, you know, you were diagnosed with Alzheimer's, but now it's Lewy bodies, or now it's this and this, and lucky you, you have two or three types of forms of dementia. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts in terms of trying to explain to a family how things can, can maybe change along the line? I mean, I, I'm usually a, a pretty pragmatic type of person to say, if it's going to make a difference, I feel like it's very important. If there is a different type of treatment for it, or if there, you know, for example, Parkinson's, if there were Parkinson's drugs that maybe could have helped the Parkinson's part and made her a little more comfortable, it may have been worth that. But once you've, once you've gotten rid of the, um, the diseases that you can treat, right? Once we've made sure this isn't thyroid or blood in the brain or whatever else it is, you know, I think you have to really sit with the family and say, okay, how, how important is it is this to you to know exactly? Because whether it's Parkinson's dementia or Lewy bodies or Alzheimer's, were you go, you know, is there some different treatment we're going to do? And if there is, then I think it's important to know. But if there is not and we're doing supportive care, then, you know, you can go down, you know, a whole rabbit hole of testing to your point and other things. And where is it really going to get you anywhere else in the end? Maybe the family just needs some more support to understand, you know, how to help this person. You know, when you talk about your mom talking to people who have passed, as long as she was happy, I mean, you know, it's not hurting her. It's not hurting you. So to the point, it sounds like you, you did a great job at the time of coming to grips with it and not getting mad at her. And not yelling, what are you doing? What are you talking about? I think, you know, there's probably more treatment that needs to go to the family. The only other piece I would say in there is if there is something that could be um, hereditary, then you really would probably want to know, like some of that, um, which is way off topic, but that very early onset dementia that, you know, happens in people's 40s and 50s. There's some families I've seen, mm -hmm. you know, read about. Um, that, that's a little bit different because then you're wanting to find out, is it truly going to affect you at that moment? But otherwise, if it's Alzheimer's, Lewy body dementia, you know, are you going to do anything, Parkinson's dementia, are you going to do anything to prevent any of those? Well, hopefully you're doing, uh, eating a, a good diet, exercising like you can, getting your hearing tested and all those other things, and would mitigate any of the risk factors you know trying to keep your brain as healthy as you can, busy and as active as you can for as long as you can, you know, and, and social connections too. I know that um, this has been a very tough time for a lot of people. Actually, in our survey, um, over 60% of those who already had cognitive decline during this COVID period had a worsening of the cognitive decline and had increased feelings of depression or anxiety. So it's really taken a toll even on those who maybe some think you know, it wouldn't affect that much. Well, it's huge. And that uh, brings me to another question, because with COVID-19, you know, a lot of people are, 
being impacted, not only by the health piece, but that social and emotional piece. And, you know, I have always said, people go, oh, your mom can't have the disease. I mean, way back when, no one lives that long. And I'm like, well, leave it to my mom to break that rule, <laughs> you know. But I believe she lived that long um, because she was engaged, because she felt part of her community. Um, she felt loved and, and still felt that she could give it. And, uh, and I also think that she uh, stuck around because she had a lot of lessons to teach um, in this process itself. Um, how are people coping with COVID-19? Um, you know, have you heard from families? Because this affects everybody. I mean, a lot of them can't go to adult day or they can't get their respite or they're scared to have home health care come in. They were going to move, but now they're not going to. I mean, there's, th these are huge, mm -hmm. massive decisions. And so, you know, what I've been seeing on my side and hearing from people living with it and then the professionals out there is, you know, families are scared to death. Um, some of them hadn't seen their loved ones for four to six months, mm -hmm. and they didn't know if they were going to die or their loved one was going to die or would they no longer remember them by the time they got in. I mean, they worried heavily on these things. And, and yet a lot of people, you know, friends and family kind of poo-pooed it. You know, this isn't that big of a deal. It's not going to have that big of impact. From professionals where people were like living in a community, I was hearing everyone did really good until that kind of two to three month marker. And then that's when they started really, and it was amazing because everybody kind of at that, between that two and three month marker, everything was changing. And did it really change? We'll never know. Or did, could staff finally breathe trying to figure out what's the new process that they were noticing? But a um, lot of lot of issues going on out there. Totally, and in in our survey, we actually surveyed wide range of ages. So two out of three felt increased feelings of depression or anxiety. And it was interesting because when you look at different age groups, I know we're talking more cognitive decline and older. I actually would have thought that the older, 65 and older, would have done the worst in our survey, but they didn't. It was that sandwich generation. It was us. Now, it was, you know, those taking care of their kids and their parents, actually, sandwich generation is younger than I am, more than 35 to 49. But um, when they're worrying about their parents, they're worrying about their kids, one in two of those people said they felt like they were losing their mind at some point during this time. And over 60% said it affected their relationships. So if they are taking care of an older family member and they're falling apart, um, and, and depressed or anxious or really affecting the relationships, it's only going to make the relationship with the um, parent even worse. Um, you know, as I said before, the survey showed that the, those with cognitive decline did worse. I thought I just read yesterday also in the news that um, death rates were increasing with those with cognitive decline and all due to even just the lack of socialization. I mean, I've seen it with my 13-year-old and my mom, who's 86 years old today, and just seeing those two, my mom doesn't live with me, but seeing the way those two were locked in the house for months, you know, and not having their usual, you know, social engagements. I mean, when my mother told, my mother lives in New York, and when she told me she was starting to play bridge with three friends, I sort of had a little bit of a heart attack. Like, no, mom, you're 86, and she doesn't have any risk factors. You can't go out there. And she's like, well, 
we're all only seeing each other, we're wearing masks, we're playing bridge outside, we're not having food, and we're washing when we get in the house and we're hand sanitizing between hands. I'm like, well, I, I think it's more important for you to be with your friends right now rather than by your, in your house by yourself all this time than worrying as much about as long as you're being safe and we know how this can be transmitted. So as long as you're wearing your mask and washing your hands, you feel better. But I think nobody really realized what that social isolation is gonna to do to any age group, but especially those, you know, and especially if you're in an assisted living or something and, you know, have to watch out the window to look at your family. Uh, I just can't imagine what people have gone through during all of this. Yeah, it's it's been hard. Families have said it just breaks their heart because the person inside is going, come on in, get in here, come on. <laughs> They're not understanding. Not, we're not allowed. The whole process and, you know, get that thing off your face, you know, and, and all of those types of things. It's just, uh, it's very interesting. And now that people are allowed back in, you know, they're all garbed up, you know, with the PPE. And so that's changed. And, and some families have, um, you know, in some communities are doing like Zoom meetings and FaceTime and things like that. But I have one gentleman in my memory cafe, and they actually set up an, an iPad in, in his wife's room. And no one needs to touch it after it's initially plugged in. And he can pop in and just check on her anytime. And he says, you know, she can't always see me or figure out where the voice is coming from, but it calms him down. Yes. And so now in his community, um, there are quite a few people that have said, hey, help, help us do that. Because, you know, like you said, the care partners, it's tough. It, it's, it's tough on everybody. And I'm glad that the whole social isolation is coming to a head and the importance of feeling included and purposeful and connected in community. I'm, I'm hoping that's going to help us bridge the gap just in the world at large, you know, the importance of, of inclusivity. Um, now, I also wanted to just ask in terms of the survey itself, is that something that people can still take and is it still available or is it closed? No, it is available. You can take the survey. You can learn a little bit more about brain health. Um, we have some great information up there for you. And then you can learn a little bit more about MDVIP also. And if there's doctors near you that, you know, would have the time to partner with you and help you if you are concerned about your brain health or your heart health or whatever it is. Oh, that's wonderful. I know people like taking surveys. Do you know how long it takes to complete? It's not long, about... 10 minutes maybe i mean not even that it's a, it's a short survey just there's some true false questions and you know things like and, and it's interesting you know things like is alzheimer's fatal true or false questions about the other diseases and we have all the answers so you can learn about you know what you got wrong or what you got right so you'll find out if you pass or fail i'm excited to personally go take the survey myself and get out there i think this is a really important peace and um, I'm sure you know uh, and people look at me as an expert but I'm sure there's things that I, I might not get right either plus I don't like taking tests so I'll use that as an excuse as well <laughs> well nobody will know what you get so don't yeah, worry no one but me no one but me but that but that's okay it's uh, I, I think it's good to be informed I think it's good to um, encourage people to take these things it's a it's a just another way to 
connect and then help us with research in terms of where are the needs that is critically important uh, for for people to know so that we can design programs that'll really help and support one another right i mean you know i you know all of this but i think that you know knowing what drugs can work on it so then you need to work backwards and say well what's the root cause i mean most of my educational career we were looking at amyloid for everything for alzheimer's and then things move on and is it tangles and what's there so you know there needs to be better diagnostic tests my doctors all the time ask me we we have a lot of screening tests for cardiovascular they do cognitive testing but they said you know we don't have heart attacks or strokes in our practices anymore because at MDVIP, we do the right screenings and we can treat the patients and help mitigate their risks. I need help with cancer and Alzheimer's. Those are the two things that my physicians want to be able to diagnose earlier and being able, and being able to help them. So we've done research. Um, I've had even some of my doctors have talked to the world's experts and all. And, you know, there's nothing that's just at prime time yet that you can, you know, go to your doctor and say, order me this myeloproxidase which is a great cardiac inflammatory marker for heart disease um there's nothing like that right now for alzheimer's um you know i have some hope for the liquid biopsy blood test for cancer coming down the pike but i think alzheimer's we're still a little bit behind that and so until we have an easy i don't want to say cheap but an easy reasonably priced test so that everybody can get it um, and get it as early and maybe even something that can follow you. I mean, that is one thing about cognitive testing. Um, and you know, when you do things like in the doctor's office, they ask you to remember things or, you know, what day is it, all that kind of stuff. Um, if you actually follow people on some of those screeners, you can start to detect small changes in cognitive decline so that you can get somebody very early on. So maybe you can understand their risk factors, make their blood sugars better, get their gums cleaned out, you know, maybe they have depression that's adding to it or a thyroid issue that's adding to it. Treat everything so you can hopefully keep them, keep their brains as healthy as long as you can. I do want to get into a little bit more of what differentiates um, MDVIP from others, but is there anything else along the dementia line that you wanted to mention specifically? No, I think we got through everything there. I mean, I can tell you uh, more about MDVIP. We are a national network of primary care physicians everywhere from Florida to Maine to Alaska to Hawaii. Um, these physicians have the time to sit with you, talk to you. Um, the cornerstone of this model is a yearly annual wellness program where you get about two hours between some of the tests and spending time with the physician. So time to sit and talk through all your tests, identify things, um, and then make a plan for the year, an annual wellness plan. It's sort of, it's sort of like getting that executive style physical that you would go somewhere for, but then when you come back with the binder from the executive physical, you know, nobody's helping you implement it. Our doctors not only do the executive physical, but then they help you all year round to implement it. Um, our doctors do things like, well, pre-COVID, um, walk with the doc, so they'll take their patients and help them walk, take them to a grocery store and teach them, shop with the doc, teach them, you know, go to the produce aisle, don't do those end caps where they put all that sugary pre-processed stuff, you know, walk by those. 
Um, but so trying to build that sense of community that you know you were talking about before. Um, we've published, I've published articles supporting the network, showing that not only do we identify more people at risk for heart disease, not only do we take better care of chronic conditions, but we save the healthcare system money. Um, last year alone, we probably saved Medicare about $600 million just in the decrease in hospitalizations, the screening, and the taking better care of people. Wow, that's, that's huge. And Lord knows in the economy that we're living in right now, we, we need to watch the, the dollars and cents and we need to keep people healthy. I, I think so many times people talk about our healthcare system not as preventative, but you know, it's, it's always like 10 steps behind, so you're ill. And so there's something to fix instead of right. trying to, to head it off ahead of time. And I love the personalized service. I mean, who would ever think that a doctor might go to the grocery store with you or whatever it might be? Or um, I don't know, maybe when they're visiting, just going for a walk instead of sitting in. So they're actively doing, you know, walking the talk together um, right. through the process and stuff. That's, that is really unbelievable. Anyone interested in that, I am imagining can just go to mdvip.com for more information and see who's in their area. Mm -hmm. And um, and then it, do they contact one another throughout the year at all? I'm sure that's another thing people will be. So then it is your primary care physician mm -hmm. so that they will, you know, if you have a cold, you'll go see them or if you have diabetes, you'll follow up with that. Um, but they do multiple checkpoints anyway to make sure that you are following the wellness plan that they set out. You know, if you're trying to lose weight, you may come in more often for coaching versus, you know, if you're 35 and pretty healthy and go through the whole yearly visit and you don't find much, maybe you'll come in, you know, in six months just for a check-in. Um, but they'll, you know, follow up. There's a lot of personal touch there because there's the time. Um, they limit their practices to about 600 patients and so that they really have that time. Most office visits are half an hour and then those yearly visits are anywhere between an hour and two hours so that you get a lot of time. There are no more doorknob questions because you get everything answered in the office. And then if you call during the day, um, you know, the doctor will usually call you right back or talk to you right then. It's not like I always um, laugh with the doctors when they come into the network to say, it's a paradigm shift for your office staff. They have spent years keeping patients away from you, and now they have to let them in. You have, they have to be able to say, hey, so-and-so's in the waiting room, they need five minutes. You know, I got this room ready for you, go take, go take care of them. Same day appointments, then you get their cell phone number. It's really that, that time with the physician and that yearly wellness program, like the executive physical, that can really help identify disease. Wow, that's, that's fantastic. Is there a cost to this and how does it work? So to join an MDVIP practice, there is a membership fee. Um, average across the country is $1,800 for the year. And so for that, you get, you know, the time with the physician, the yearly executive physical. Um, and then, you know, whenever you do go see the physician, it is also supplemental to insurance. So our doctors all take Medicare and the commercial insurance. And so if you go in for a sinus infection, they'll bill your insurance. But if you go in for your yearly wellness program, you know, that's all of what's included in that yearly membership fee. 
Gotcha. And it must be nice for the doctors too, to, I mean, people always say in healthcare, you know, people get into it to, you know, have this personal relationship. And so they actually get to really know their, their peeps now, and instead of just this in and out and, and feeling this pressure. I mean, that, I would think as a physician, that just has to feel really good. You, you kind of hit the nail on the head there. I mean, for them, many of them are burned out now. I mean, you know, you see this all over the news and in traditional practice, they're just churning through 20, 30, even more patients a day. And there is no time to really prevent disease. I mean, they're literally doing reactive medicine, putting band-aids on things. And so when you get a very good physician who has the time to step back and really look at somebody who comes in and want to prevent disease, no matter what age, I mean, you know, my mom, as I said, is 86. I still want somebody to think preventatively for her, right? I don't want her to have a stroke because then what if she ends up, you know, in a nursing home and not having a good quality of life? That's not what I would want for her. So you need somebody who can do that. And for physicians, you know, this is why we went to medical school, right? It was sort of our calling to make people feel better and to keep them healthy. And that's what at the root of this personalized preventive care model is keeping people healthy so they can live healthier, more vibrant lives. Well, thank you, Dr. Clemens, for joining us today. This has just been so interesting and fascinating. And I really encourage our audience to go and take that survey. You got nothing to lose, everything to gain. And uh, not only for yourself, but for from a research standpoint too, to help doctors really figure out what are the needs, where where's the education lacking, where do you need support? And again, you can go to mdvip.com forward slash brain health. Um, wonderful, wonderful information. So again, thank you so much. In wrapping up, I'd like to again thank Dr. Andrea Clements with MDVIP. Uh, she did an excellent job with us today. I learned so much and it was just a, just a really comfortable conversation. So thank you. And for our listeners, please like, click and share. Don't forget to pass this episode on. It's important for people to take that survey to get the information they need. And it's only going to take about 10 minutes of your time. Till next time, we will catch you later. Bye now. Hey everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.